Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. Taller order than it was just when I began this program only weeks ago. Uh, today we have a very special version of our Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segment called Black Lives Matter and the Spirit of Vatican II. What's the relationship between the two? What do they have in common? But first, the other day, a listener sent a email to VMPR, um, a, and he shall re, or she shall remain anonymous, sent an email. Apparently, at this person's parish, the priest is offering general absolution to the congregation before Mass on Sundays and celebrating the sacrament of penance by appointment only. Now, the listener confessed to be in a state of mortal sin and wondered if that general absolution was going to suffice in order to uh, receive Holy Communion? Or would it be better to make an appointment and go to confession before receiving uh, the Blessed Sacrament? Now, I don't in question the, the intentions of the, the pastor at the parish, but you know, VMPR responded that it would probably be better to wait and make the appointment and go to confession before you receive the Blessed Sacrament. Now, the thing is, one of the um, provisions for general absolution is to make a firm resolution by the penitent to confess um, their sins, especially each one of the grave sins that they cannot confess uh, because of some impediment. That's why general absolution is offered in the first place. You know, we all know that the precepts of the Church oblige Catholics to assist at Mass on Sundays and Holy Days and to receive communion at least once in a year and to make a yearly confession. Now, obviously, it's, it's encouraged to, uh, to receive communion frequently, to go to confession regularly. But once a year is that bare minimum. So general absolution, obviously it's sufficient to absolve mortal sins or, or there wouldn't be any point to it. But the purpose of general absolution is to absolve sins in an emergency situation, uh, in a situation where individual confession is impossible. Like if you've seen the movie Titanic, you know, there's, a, there's that scene where there's a Catholic priest on deck granting general absolution to a big crowd of Catholics. And these are people that are about, you know, the Titanic's about, Titanic's about to sink. They're about to go into this icy water. And, you know, either if they don't drown and get sucked down with the ship, they're, they're almost certainly going to freeze to death. Now, the situation of, ah, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I can't go to confession unless I make an appointment, that <laughs> hardly seems to be the same thing. And I think it should be remembered that if you receive general absolution, like I said, you're strictly obliged, you know, unless you're prevented by some, some moral impossibility, to confess those sins within a year and to confess all the mortal sins that you were unable to confess because of the emergency. Like when you make an act of perfect contrition. You know, an act of perfect contrition is sufficient to absolve you of your sins. But part of that perfect, you know, contrition is the resolution to confess those sins at your earliest opportunity. You know, I was baptized uh, at the Easter Vigil back in 1996, and I, so I didn't have to go to confession before my first communion. But, uh, and I've told the story a thousand times, so I won't again, but it wasn't long before I did feel the need to make my first confession, and then I began to make uh, regular confessions. And as my, as my second Easter as a Catholic approached, I went to confession on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. Now, as you might expect, 
there was quite a crowd, you know, because that was going to be the last opportunity to go to confession before Easter Sunday. But our pastor had not seen fit to make any provision for, you know, maybe a, a larger number of penitents. So when the priest had to leave the confessional to go say Mass, there was still 20-some-odd people in line. So he announced that he was going to grant a general absolution. But what he did was go down the line from person to person to person, and he told them, just, you know, whisper into my ear, one sin. And then, so, so each one of us had uh, made some kind of auricular confession, even though an abbreviated one. And then we set our act of contrition, and then he granted us the general absolution. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that was licit or not, because, I mean, I, again, it wasn't technically an emergency. You have to receive communion in the Easter time, but that's, you know, first Sunday of Lent to Trinity Sunday, right? That's, that's a pretty wide uh, uh, margin there. Now, on the other hand, like I say, each of us did confess to the priest, even if it was uh, abbreviated. So, you know, I, I put a link in the show notes. I invite you to follow that link uh, to the um, instructions on general absolution and read it for yourself, okay? In any event, it's well to remember you're obliged to assist at Holy Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, but you're not obliged to receive communion except once in a year. And in our current situation, we're dispensed even from those uh, minimal obligations, so if you are in need of confession, if you're in mortal sin, if you want to approach the Blessed Sacrament, then make an appointment by all means. By all means, make a, a good confession, because that's the only way you can have the certainty that your sins have been absolved and that you've been returned to a state of grace. And that's the important thing. You don't have to receive communion, but if you're going to receive communion, you need to be in a state of grace. Okay, something else. I got an email last Thursday with a crazy subject line, is Cracker Barrel racist? And it was linked to an article by a fellow named Edwin Benson called The Anti-Family Attack Against the Quote-Unquote Racist Cracker Barrel. And he begins his article by saying that back in 1966, Mao Zedong launched his cultural revolution in China because he uh, declared that China's greatest enemy was her tradition. And so he made war on what he called the four olds. Not, and that's not talking about an Oldsmobile. It's talking about four old things, old ideas, old customs, old culture, and old habits. And the radical left in the United States is borrowing that old idea from Chairman Mao. Because in the name of changing our quote-unquote racist culture, uh, they're, they're attacking the restaurant chain Cracker Barrel. Okay, and I, I admit that Cracker Barrel is kind of an American version of Chairman Mao's Four Olds. From the Benson's article, he says, they look like rustic farmhouses with rocking chairs on an extended front porch. Their menus consist of fare designed to make visitors think of Sunday dinner at Grandma's. The walls resemble a cross-section of America's attics, featuring old photographs, hand tools, and signs for products that have not been produced since the Truman administration. Now, I would add that they also usually have shops attached, gift shops, that carry all manner of, you know, bric-a-brac, but including old varieties of candy and soda pop and, and cookies and toys and so forth uh, that, you know, baby boomers remember from when they were kids, but that aren't generally available today. And, and I tell you what, full disclosure, I love Cracker Barrel. You know, there's a couple of restaurants in California. The closest one, I think, is in Victorville. So nothing local uh, to us here. 
But whenever I travel and people say, hey, you know, we want to take you out uh, for dinner, you know, where do you want to go? And I always ask, is there a Cracker Barrel around? Because I love that Southern style home cooking, the biscuits and gravy and the chicken fried steak and all the rest of it. Because that reminds me of my grandparents' farm uh, outside of Salem, Missouri, where I used to spend summer vacation as a kid. So for me, you know, this is this is personal. And I understand this current nonsense uh, started with a tweet from self-proclaimed, I have to read it here, um, diversity and inclusion advocate April Rain. All right, and she said, and I quote, open the door to a Cracker Barrel and you get a whiff of Jim Crow. One of her respondents uh, returned, y'all ever walk in a place that just feels racist? And another entry reads, Cracker Barrel feels like walking into a place that was just desegregated three hours ago. Now, Mr. Benson's point is that in our current atmosphere, Cracker Barrel could be impacted, even boycotted, for the crime, the quote-unquote crime, of feeling racist. Now, quick history, Cracker Barrel was founded by a guy named Dan Evans, Back in 1969, when racial tensions were running high, 69, that's uh, Watts riots, uh, um, Kent State, that stuff had just been happening. And he just wanted to recreate the old country stores from his childhood. And Mr. Benson rightly points out, and I quote here, no serious historian of the African-American experience can argue with Cracker Barrel's decor or menu. The front porch rocker is just as much a part of the rural black experience as it is of the rural white. Often the framed photographs found in Cracker Barrel locations depict black men and women. I would say ditto for the staff and for the customers. But to the radical left, anything that speaks of tradition or family or American heritage, black or white, is suspect. And of course, Cracker Barrel points to all three. Therefore, it must be resisted, if not destroyed. And then Mr. Benson, again, he says, in the modern world of leftist indignation, the facts are often irrelevant. The emotion, the feeling is the essential factor. Emotions are more easily communicated than facts. Emotions carry an instant charge. They are hard to engage with rational arguments. Cracker Barrel represents a threat because it evokes memories of family and tradition. A taste of chicken and dumplings like grandma used to make can turn the mind to other thoughts of grandma and of the principles and values that Grandma represented. Chairman Mao understood this, and that's why he ordered that everything representing the four olds be destroyed in China. As long as old ideas, old customs, old culture, and old habits existed, they beckoned the Chinese to return to the old order. So reminders of any aspect of the world before Chairman Mao had to be stamped out. And that's why this, this little tempest in a teapot over Cracker Barrel is important, okay? Because there's an organized attempt to bring down all the statues, rewrite all the history, and restructure American society in the line of a Marxist utopia, okay? And we're going to talk about that, what it means, and what it means especially to Catholics after Vatican II when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Aceta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Aceta. Give Dr. Aceta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your home for Keep It Simple Catholicism here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And we were talking uh, right before the break about a uh, a Twitter attack on Cracker Barrel for the crime of, uh, quote-unquote, feeling racist. And I mentioned Chairman Mao and his attack on the four olds because he wanted to get rid of everything in his society that represented old ideas, old customs, old cultures, or old habits from before the revolution. And he, he wanted to get rid of these things because he knew as long as they were there, people would be tempted to return to the old order, to long for the days before everything changed. So all those reminders had to be erased, had to be stamped out. And that's why this little debate over Cracker Barrel uh, is important because, as I said right before the break, there's an organized attempt on the part of the radical left to bring down all the statues, rewrite history, restructure American society uh, along the lines of this Marxist utopia, including the irrational dictates of, you know, the whole magic rainbow alphabet soup uh, of sexual deviance. That's, uh, you know, part and parcel of the Black Lives Matter ideology. And if you don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Go to the Black Lives Matter website and... Read it for yourself. They make, no, they make no bones about it. 
See, the wholesome aspect of the four olds are the best defense against cultural revolution. And by the way, if the destruction of tradition and the old order, right, the old ideas, old customs, old culture, old habits, if that seems hauntingly familiar to you, there's a reason. And that's what we're going to be talking about now in our special Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segment, Black Lives Matter and the Spirit of Vatican II. Mao outlawed the four olds, ideas, customs, culture, and habits in order to rewrite history and restructure his society. You know, he had this in common with all the revolutionaries, the Nazis and communists in the 20th century, the the French revolutionaries in the 18th century, uh, the Protestant reformers of the 16th century. All were intent on erasing the old order of things, destroying monuments, erasing memories, re-education, rewriting history. You know, of all people, Catholics should be familiar with this behavior because that's precisely the way the Second Vatican Council, the Vatican II Revolution, was implemented in the Church. And we're going to look at all sides of this question. I'm 60 years old. And people my age and older who were raised Catholic, I was not, I'm an adult convert, but people my age and older who were raised Catholic can tell you what it was like. Every aspect of Catholic life was thrown into upheaval after 1965. Um, And I'm thinking, first of all, about the so-called renovation of church buildings. Just like the Black Lives Matter protesters and the left-wing politicians that enable them, you know, they're calling for the removal of, of statues and monuments. Well, uh, in, in the spirit of Vatican II, people insisted on the same thing, removing statues from the churches. And that's not all. Because I've heard stories, and in some cases even seen photographs, of beautiful statues, beautiful marble altars being destroyed with sledgehammers, you know, and, and paid for by parishioners, and then thrown into dumpsters. Or in one case, I, I remember a, a marble altar was broken up and used as the uh, uh, parking blocks, right? The, 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 normally a block of concrete at the end of a parking space in a parking lot. They used the marble from the old altar in the parking lot. Holy altars where Christ came down became present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, in the Blessed Sacrament. And they weren't just, I mean, beyond that, they were also beautiful and precious works of art. Those altars, often made by skilled craftsmen, hand-hewn, hand-carved from marble and, and made abroad by people that have been doing it for generations and then brought to the United States at great expense by ordinary parishioners saving up their pennies, working people, poor people, who had to make real sacrifices in order to, to raise the money to, to build a beautiful church for the glory and honor of God, because that's what was important in their lives only to then see them destroyed and, and discarded like so much trash by the church. Now, people who lamented their destruction or, God forbid, complained, were demonized, vilified, marginalized. You're unfaithful. You're disobedience. You're going against the Pope. And this has to happen. This has to happen to make way for the restoration of the table altar so necessary for preparing the sacred banquet, the the sacred meal. Okay, this is a both-end situation. Yes, the Mass is a sacrifice, primarily, and also a sacred banquet. But replacing altars with tables, or table altars, 
is exactly what the Protestants did precisely to destroy belief uh, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And it worked. And the same happened with the, with the magnificent stained glass windows and the statues. But it's not just that. Stations of the cross taken down, shag carpet installed over marble floors, uh, beautiful murals whitewashed, etc., etc. I expect that, that you can add to this list. But it's not just art and architecture that had to be destroyed. But music, catechesis, history, private devotions, public devotions, the liturgy itself vilified and replaced with a new order or nothing at all. The sacrificial nature of the Mass downplayed to the point that a majority of Catholics today do not know that the Mass is a true sacrifice or that Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist. All the treasures, the whole support structure of the Church abandoned and, and the attempt made, at least, for the memory of it to be erased. Now, I remember, I remember talking to a priest, a certain priest, not long after my conversion, a couple of years in, uh, and I quoted something to him, and as I recall, um, it was from Faith of Our Fathers. And he asked, well, where's that from? I said, well, Faith of Our Fathers by James Cardinal Gibbons. And he looked me in the eye, clutched his pearls, and said, oh, no, you must never read anything written before Vatican II. And he was serious. I thought he was joking. You know, and I kind of chuckled. And I said, well, Father, does that include the Bible? You know, because I read, the last time I checked, the Bible was written before Vatican II. But he was dead serious. And, and like all liberals, he looked at me like I had three heads, you know, or, or like I was speaking Chinese, as though he just couldn't process the words coming out of my mouth. He had that expression like a dog looking at a ceiling fan, you know. Uh, but why, you know, why did the whole tradition of the church have to go down the Orwellian memory hole? And the answer is because it's necessary to erase the past in order to usher in the new springtime of the church, right? In other words, because Vatican II. And what a springtime, right? I mean, before the council, we had a mere 75% of Catholics going to church every Sunday. Uh, and now, 55 years after Vatican II, 50 years of the renewal of the liturgy, and that number's all the way up to 22%. The vast majority of Catholics never bother to darken the door of a church. And by the way, 22%, we're, we're kicking butt. That's more than twice as many uh, people that go to Mass as in most European countries. I mean, you know, the, twice the, the percentage. Uh, and, and most of the hierarchy either continues to repeat the new springtime narrative, right? The, oh no, things were much, things were much worse before the revolution, comrade. Right? Or you've got the, the few conservatives that wring their hands and say, golly, who could possibly have seen this coming? We're all so, so shocked and, and, and dismayed that we didn't get the new springtime that we were promised. But you know, is it really, was it really a surprise? You know, I consider the October Revolution of 1917. Right? The Bolsheviks, um, and we call them Bolsheviks, they call themselves the Social Democratic Party. All right. After they executed the, the Romanovs, the royal family of Russia, they uh, were, got involved with a, a civil war almost immediately with the Red Army of Vladimir Lenin. And then you've got, uh, you know, that, that goes on for a number of years. And finally, the, the, the Reds were victorious. And in 1923, the social democracy becomes the communist Soviet Union. 
uh, considered the election uh, as Chancellor of Germany of the famous socialist and environmentalist and vegetarian Adolf Hitler, who, by the way, defunded the police. Yeah, he defunded the police and he replaced them with locally organized community groups called the Brown Shirts. And how did that end? Well, it ended with him proclaiming himself the supreme dictator of a new thousand-year Reich. Uh, how about the French Revolution? Liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? Liberty, equality, and brotherhood. The great uh, uh, foundation of democracy, okay? Well, um, after the reign of terror that saw the destruction of statues and monuments, again, uh, and the execution of the French royal family and the wholesale slaughter of Catholic priests and nuns and anybody who uh, ran afoul of the revolution and what their you know, uh, uh, needs and wants were that particular week, a little fellow named Napoleon rose to power on the slogan, La Révolution, c'est moi. I am the revolution. But how did that end? It ended with him proclaiming himself emperor. Unless we forget the church reform movement uh, of Martin Luther started with him nailing up his 95 theses as a Catholic monk, ended with him married, divorced, laicized, uh, uh, and with having led nine million European Catholics out of the church, but not necessarily his church, right? Which, which or, or the church, led them out of the church that he meant to reform. But instead, he caused the rise of so many rival uh, heretical sects that before his death, he was prompted to say, I wanted to get rid of one pope, and now there are more than a hundred. Okay, it's not, we have... History. That's why people don't want you to know your history, because it wasn't hard to predict the decline of the church. And it's not hard to predict the eclipse of the United States if we don't stop the leftist, socialist, and yes, racist Black Lives Matter types and their willing accomplices in the government and the press. Got to vote them out. You got to turn them off. Now, fortunately, the church, unlike Russia and Germany, France, and sorry to say the United States, the church has the divine promise of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what to do? What to do about the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council? How do we get into this mess? Well, we got into this mess because of competing interpretations of Vatican II. Now, see, unlike previous councils, Vatican II was a pastoral council. They weren't going to make any dogmatic pronouncements. It was a pastoral council that issued no canons or decrees. Unfortunately, what that means is they left no guide for the interpretation of those 16 documents. All of the other, you know, there, there was no spirit of Trent. There was no you know, spirit of Nicaea that followed those councils because they had canons and decrees. They, they, they wrote the documents and then they issued canons and decrees that very specifically spelled out, uh, this is what we said and this is what we didn't say. And if you think we said X, then, you know, you're anathema, you're in trouble. So we have... Um, you know, was Vatican II meant to be a restatement of the Church's unchanging teachings in order to make them more comprehensible to people in the modern world? Or was it meant to be a new start from zero, as if there was no Church before 1962? I'll give you three guesses, then we'll be right back with the answer right here on No Nonsense Catholic, on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code BMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, before the break, we were talking about um, how you know revolutionaries of all types uh, across the centuries have tried to kind of erase the memory of what went before, and how this same tactic was used in the implementation of the spirit of Vatican II. What happened in the Church after the Second Vatican Council? And now I, I put that up to the fact that there are competing interpretations of the council. And the reason there are competing interpretations of the council is because since Vatican II was pastoral in nature and not uh, dogmatic in nature, it wasn't defining any new dogmas. That's not to say that it didn't have any uh, uh, binding teaching. But because it was a pastoral council, uh, they did not issue any canons or decrees. It's a novelty in the history of the church. So you, you don't have any interpretive key Right? There is no list of things that say, you know, this is what we said, and if you say something else, then you're anathema. Right? That's what canons or decrees are for. Well, they didn't do that. So we have these competing interpretations. Broadly, that, uh, you know, Vatican II was meant to be a, a, a restatement of the Church's un, uh, unchanging truths uh, in order to help bring the people of the modern world to an understanding of the Church's unchanging teaching. And on the other hand, you've got the, uh, that, that it was just a new start from zero, that it was a reboot, uh, you know, as if there was no church before 1962. 
Now, today, we finally are in a position where there's a handful of bishops in the West that, um, you know, go beyond just these competing interpretations and will admit that there are actually some issues with some of the documents themselves, okay? But even then, we have competing traditions amongst people who agree on that. Um, Archbishop Vigano recently wrote yet another bombshell letter where he basically says he thinks the Vatican Council, he's finally come to the place, he thinks it should be abandoned, that the documents should just be, you know, put in the shredder and, and we uh, start, start over, you know, uh, should just be abandoned. Archbishop, or, or Bishop, rather, Athanasius Schneider disagrees. He acknowledges there are problems with some of the texts, particularly novelties like ecumenism, uh, but he doesn't think we should just throw out an ecumenical council of the church, right, for which there is, you don't have any precedent really for that. Now, I've been on all sides of this fence, from conservative Novus Ordo to traditionalist to what I, you know, now consider the no-nonsense Catholic position. And I agree with Bishop Schneider, Vatican II, or, and also Benedict XVI, Vatican II needs to be understood, needs to be interpreted in light of the tradition. That, you know, the Vatican II needs to conform to the, to the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it. You don't reevaluate the 2,000 years of tradition in light of Vatican II. I mean, that's pretty simple. That's the way all councils are. Um, however, you know, um, whatever cannot be reconciled with tradition... And, and so we're talking about fallible teachings, we're talking about pastoral initiatives, which are, which are bound to time and place anyway. Those things need to be evaluated, corrected, and may perhaps in some cases abandoned. And the church has done that before, by the way. Uh, councils of, of Pistoia, for example, uh, they were unbinding teachings that they said, you know what, we need to stop this course because those teachings are, are leading us to a bad place. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, not, it's not unprecedented. But, you know, as far as doctrine is concerned, we really need to put to rest the idea that Vatican II changed the teaching of the Church. Some people no longer obey the teaching of the Church, but the, the teaching hasn't changed. Okay? And, and so for our uh, Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up segment, we're going to look at seven passages from Vatican II that I think every Catholic needs to know. And this is a list that was compiled by a fellow named Jared M. Sylvie, Way back in 2015, now uh, this is something I talked about it on the radio, on Radio Maria, when that first uh, came out. I've talked about it on Happy Hour, I think in 2018, I want to say, uh, because I thought it was pertinent. And it's something that bears repeating, so we're going to talk about it again today. Passages from Vatican II that every Catholic should know. And once again, um, you'll find the uh, uh, URL to the, uh, you know, that article. Everything's online and stays there forever, so uh, there's a link to it. Uh, and you can read it for yourself. So everybody agrees that, that Vatican II was a milestone in the history of the Church, but the meaning, the application of the teachings of Vatican II is a source of confusion and division right down to the present moment. Because 50 years of dissent uh, that's been justified in the name of Vatican II, or the so-called spirit of Vatican II, has you know, led to this situation. And, and so I think it's really, it would be well for more Catholics to be familiar with those documents and what they actually say. And obviously, I don't expect every Catholic is going to read, you know, all the 16 documents, hundreds of pages of conciliar documents, which are, by the way, written like stereo instructions for the most part. But there are certain passages that you should know because they uh, uh, 
can be used to refute the claims of those who try and justify dissent from the teaching and practice of the church, dissent from the tradition of the church, by appealing to Vatican II or or the yet-to-be-defined spirit of Vatican II. And so in, in his article, Mr. Silvey offered seven passages that we're going to look at today. You know, I would say the most disturbing changes, the ones that were felt the most by Catholics in the pew after Vatican II were the changes to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Now listen to this. This is from Sacrosanctum Concilium number 22. Regulation of the sacred liturgy depends solely on the authority of the Church, that is, on the apostolic see and, as laws may determine, on the bishop. Therefore, no other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. Now that should be an eye-opener. Liturgists and liturgy conferences need not apply. Right? After the council, though, uniformity, doing things by the book, right? Uh, 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 say the black and do the red, as they say, referring to the, the text and the rubrics, uh, that became the chief vice, and, and creativity was the most important thing. Uh, Benedict XVI has talked about this and, and how that was not the intention of the council. You know, the fact that there were some liturgical um, revisions. Uh, that were deemed acceptable by the council, that was used as an excuse to introduce all sorts of bizarre novelties, absurd novelties, from, from uh, you know, priests ad-libbing prayers, which, by the way, is strictly forbidden, to, you know, some liturgical dancing and, and puppet masses, for heaven's sake. Now, obviously, that is the kind of experimentation that is precisely, specifically condemned by Sacrosanctum Concilium, by Vatican II. Number two, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. Now, we did a whole segment on this, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the rites of Latin and the Latin rite, I think I called it. Now, in my parish, we have the extraordinary form of the Mass, right, traditional Latin Mass, on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. And it's the 12 noon Mass on Holy Days. And so oftentimes you get people who are not traditional Catholics who just stumble into that 12 uh, o'clock Mass to make their obligation and find themselves at a traditional Latin Mass. And I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, I'm pretty sure it was the Feast of the Assumption. There was an elderly woman there with a walker, and I was holding the door for her. And she says, oh, thank you. And she looks at me and says, you know, I haven't been to a Latin Mass in as long as I can remember. And I said, wow, it's, it was nice, isn't it? And it was like somebody, it's Jekyll and Hyde, like somebody turned on a light switch. Oh, no, it's much better now that it's in English. It's much better now that we have, you know, uh, the lay people doing the readings and blah, blah, whatever she says, you know, rattle off this whole litany. And you realize, you know, this is a person who was there for all those changes. And like so many people uh, among those who stayed, she had a choice to make. Stick with what you know and love, or accept the new, or get out. And so by, you know, I mean, she did whatever she had to do to embrace all that new stuff. And yes, and she's got to take that, oh, no, no, no. Like, like I say, like that priest I talked about in the last segment, what, what I basically heard from her was, oh, no, comrade, things were much worse before the revolution. 
And, and it was surprising to me to see this sweet little old lady making a, a sweet comment about the Latin mass suddenly turn, you know, into like a 60s radical. So, um, you know, I think it, uh, when you look at the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, it does make a provision for the wider use of the vernacular, particularly in the proper prayers of the mass and, and in the hymns and so forth. But it also mandates, mandates the retention of Latin, going so far as to say that steps should be taken so that the faithful may be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. That's number 54. So, in other words, like you go to the traditional Latin Mass, everything that the altar boys say or sing or chant, you should be able to do that too. Um, Benedict Sixteenth reiterated he brought it up Vatican II said this you should know all your basic prayers all your common prayers in Latin um, I had a friend uh, now deceased God rest her soul her name is Dolores Cullen who was a Chaucer scholar right and a medievalist and um, she had arranged at her church once a year to have a mass offered for the soul of Geoffrey Chaucer for the repose of his soul which he asks for uh, at the end of the Canterbury Tales he says please have mass said for me or, for, you know, for my soul. And so they would do this yearly Chaucer Mass. And, you know, they, they did the readings in Old English. They had medieval um, music for, you know, the, the music of the Mass. Afterwards, they would have a, a little reception where there'd be a reading from Chaucer, and they would have uh, authentic medieval music again and medieval food as well, meat pies and mead and, and all this. It was wonderful. Wonderful stuff. And so uh, that was in my traddy days, you know, but I took the family there to this uh, to this Novus Ordo Mass, right? Um, but to celebrate uh, Jeffrey Chaucer and pray for his soul and, 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 you know, participate in all the activities there. Well, that year, the priest who was from a local university said, you know, Chaucer lived in medieval times. So he decided to say the ordinary of the Mass in Latin. Now, it's not a, not a traditional Mass, but just a, a, a Novus Ordo Mass. And you realize that every priest has the right to say the Latin rite in Latin. And I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> because when you find out what happened, uh, I, I, I think maybe you'll not be surprised. But we're going to talk about that and lots more about the uh, passages of Vatican II that every Catholic really needs to know. When we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic on Virgin most powerful radio. Stay with us. Hands-on apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo, where we go wall to wall with Defending, explaining, sharing the faith. Master apologist, Carlo Broussard. Carlo, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, Gary. It's great to be back in the dojo, my friend. Master apologist, Ken Hensley. Welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Good to see you again, Gary. Good to be with you. Michael Barber, welcome. You have entered into the Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. Gary, thanks for having me on. We are chatting with Master Apologist Carl Keating. Gary, it's great to be back with you. Coming into the dojo is our good friend Steve Ray. Thank you, Gary. Good to be here. Tim Staples, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, it's great to be with you, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Join many others in Gary Machuda's Apologetics Dojo. We have some of the best Catholic apologists in the nation. 
Streaming live weekdays from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific. Hands-on apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Jesus said in Luke 17, When you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have only done our duty. According to St. John of the Cross, God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So I'm talking about this this Chaucer Mass. Uh, wonderful, wonderful um, event and uh, something that I really very much enjoyed. I, I kind of hope that they... Uh, the people of the parish continue on now that Mrs. Cullen has um, gone to her reward uh, and perhaps add an intention for her soul along with Jeffy Chaucer's. But um, as I said, this one year, since it was this medieval theme to the Mass and to the uh, the uh, reception afterwards, the priest kind of spontaneously said, I know, let's do it in Latin. And um, I, like I said, I don't know what he was thinking, because he would say, Dominus phobis cum, and everybody would say, et cum spiritu tuo. Right? Everybody knows that. Dominus Fobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo, everybody. No, you don't even have to be Catholic to know that. And uh, in secular, you know, in secular, secularum, and everybody goes, amen, right? You know to do that just from watching TV. And then, but he, then he gets around to, you know, serve some corda, which is lift up your hearts. And instead of the whole congregation, now it's just me, my wife, and our four oldest kids responding you know, albemos in dominum, and, and you know, um, it is right and just. And you say, we denument used to mess. We were, the, you know, it went from the whole congregation <laughs> to just these half a dozen people in the middle of it because we were the only ones that knew the responses because we went regularly to the traditional Latin Mass. So the point is, uh, Vatican II says we're all supposed to be able to do that. Number three, while we're on the subject of Latin, the Church acknowledges Gregorian chant, especially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. And again, a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, I'm not exactly sure, we did a whole segment on this, on Gregorian chant and on church music. And I think that there's very few examples of how directly uh, the post-conciliar church went contrary to the explicit desires of Vatican II than this matter of Gregorian chant. You know, the last... 50 years or so, I have seen liturgists act as if Vatican II uh, made Gregorian chant the least suitable music, you know? Um, 
and their solution has been to replace it with a wave of what uh, Benedict Seenth called utility music, right? Because it is. It's kind of like I, I, I've made this comparison before, kind of like the campfire sing-along, you know, because you have to have music that people can, you know, those responsorial psalms, people got to be able to, to sing it after only having heard it once, right? Because it's different all the time. Um, and, you know, we don't have the training. You know, they used to, churches used to have a scola that could sing the chant. You know, that's the thing. There are musical settings for all of the antiphons and everything for the Mass. You can sing the whole Mass without any hymns at all or any organ or anything. You know, it's, it, it's, in fact, it can be a simple matter to sing the Mass because, for one thing, you don't have to pick any songs. You don't need a musical director. And, as I mentioned when we did our segment on church music, it's possible to chant the entire Mass, both the priest part and the responses, on a single note. Just one note. doesn't take any training or preparation or anything. And you can follow along in your missalette and still chant the whole thing. And, and I'll tell you, that alone, that alone is, is, it makes it beautiful and sacred and otherworldly and Catholic. <laughs> Catholic to the bone. And it's so simple. Why that is not done regularly in parishes around the country and around the world is an absolute mystery to me. All right, the next passage has to do with collegiality, which is a big issue, and the relationship between the Pope and bishops. Now, I can remember my wife teaching confirmation. She was telling the kids about the, uh, the relationship between the Pope and the College of Bishops. And she had kind of a, the young priest of the parish came in to help out. And he was contradicting her. He says, oh, no, no, no. And he held up his two index fingers. He says, the Pope and the bishop, they're like that, equal. And she's like, no, the Pope has supremacy. And he absolutely flat out denied it. Now, let's listen to, you know, will the real Vatican II please stand up? Here is one of the, the dogmatic constitutions, the dogmatic constitution on the church from Vatican II. Lumen Gentium says, and I quote, but the college or body of bishops has no authority unless it is understood together with the Roman pontiff, the successor of Peter, at its head. The Pope's power of primacy over all, both pastors and faithful, remains whole and intact. Right? Vatican II is not changing anything. In virtue of his office, that is, as vicar of Christ and pastor of the whole church, the Roman pontiff has full, supreme, and universal power over the church. And he is always free to exercise this power. In other words, he can't be vetoed by the bishops. The order of bishops which succeeds to the College of Apostles and gives this apostolic body continued existence is also the subject of supreme and full power over the universal church, provided we understand this body together with its head, the Roman pontiff, and never without its head. Yes, the College of Bishops exercise that supreme authority in the church, but only when they're united with their head bishop, with the, uh, uh, with the Pope. This power can be exercised only with the consent of the Roman pontiff. Collegiality, that was one of the hot topics at Vatican II, you know, and there were a lot of uh, people in the church wanted to move away from the concentration of power in the person of the Pope. And Vatican II did say a lot about the individual role of, of the bishop and the college of bishops. And, and, but some took that emphasis on collegiality and used it to undermine the Pope's authority, as it was spelled out at Vatican I and reiterated very specifically here in Illumin Gentium. Vatican I gave us the dogma 
of papal infallibility. You can't change it now. Okay, that the dogmas don't get reformed, but that doesn't stop you know, Hans Kung and other dissident theologians from calling that teaching. Well, I'll, I'll quote Kung himself. Uh, he says it was a decisive counterpoint to the First Vatican Council's one-sided definition of papal supremacy. See, um, counterpoint or contradiction, no, a compliment, uh, complementarity, a compliment, that would be a better word. Because what the council really did was set clear boundaries on the power of the College of Bishops and at the same time vigorously reaffirmed the primacy and supremacy of the Pope over the whole church, right? so the clergy and the faithful. Vatican II also, now the, the other, another dogmatic constitution was Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on the Word of God. And uh, that, Vatican II in, in Lumen, uh, uh, rather Dei Verbum, encouraged Catholics to read the Bible on their own, uh, to pay attention, of course, to the type of literary genre in each book, the intention of the human author, um, his intended audience. Oh, you have to take all those things into account, uh, the literal meaning before the spiritual meaning, all of that. It's a classic approach to Scripture. And we're even encouraged to read the Bible um, existentially, if you will, which is to say to read the Bible and to apply it to your own life. But what did the Council say about that? Well, this is Dei Verbum number 10. But the task of authentically interpreting the Word of God, whether written or handed on, right, so Scripture or tradition, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church, that's the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Vatican II gave great encouragement to the laity to read and study the Bible, and it's been a great benefit to me and millions of other Catholics around the world. But it reminded us of the ecclesiological and especially the magisterial context for the interpretation of Scripture. I, I, I've been going back and forth with a, a Protestant guy uh, on via email for, for the last week or so, and I told my interlocutor just the other day that he, he couldn't read the Bible in context. I mean, for him, context is like the verse before and the verse after. But I said even, you know, the whole chapter, the whole book, the, 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 the whole Testament, the whole Bible, still is not in context if you uh, are reading it outside of the context of the church. It is not for you or for me to decide for ourselves what the Bible means regarding doctrine. That is exclusively the province of the teaching office of the church. All right, and um, finally, I'm going to give one last one, I think, before we have to uh, call it a day here. But um, number six is, though they differ from one another in essence and not only in degree— the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood are nonetheless interrelated. Each of them in its own special way is a participation in the one priesthood of Christ. In other words, there is a difference, a true difference, an ontological difference between the ministerial priesthood and the, the so-called priesthood of the baptized or the, the uh, um, priesthood of the faithful, common priesthood. Uh, you know, have you ever wondered, you go to Mass and the, the priest says, the Lord be with you, and we answer, and with your spirit. Because it shows forth that difference between the priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood. 
You know, in the Latin, it's Dominus Fobiscum et Cum Spiritu Tuo, which uh, in the classic English translation of the Latin is, the Lord be with you, Vobiscum, that's plural, and the response is, and with thy spirit, and that's singular. And there's a reason for this, because in both cases, the words are taken from St. Paul, who begins some of his epistles uh, written to a community with that greeting, the Lord be with you, plural. So he's writing to communities of the faithful. But when he writes, for example, to Timothy, who's a young bishop and an individual, he says, the Lord be with thy spirit. And it's singular. And the spirit here refers to the grace of holy orders. That's the difference. And that's why the old translation, and also with you, was deficient and had to be corrected because it didn't you know, really show that, that difference. Although in, I think in many cases the damage is already done. And you have to wonder if that translation and also with you was made to obscure or to attempt to obscure the difference between the common priesthood and the ministerial priesthood. Uh, Ditto all of the other kind of liturgical rules have been assumed by lay people. But thankfully, you know, in regard to, you know, and with thy spirit being a reference to the grace of holy orders, even the USCCB has had to admit as much because of the new translation. You know, obviously we all share all Catholics, all the baptized do share in the priestly office of Christ. We do so by offering spiritual sacrifices, by participating in the sacraments, by living a life of virtue, by evangelization, by apologetics, proclaiming the word uh, and the gospel to the word, to the world rather, uh, through word and example. But the ministerial priesthood has a sacramental dimension. Father acts in persona Christi. He can absolve from sins. He can call Christ down to the altar. Uh, and, and the transubstantiation, and we can't do that. The, here's the thing. I, I, I don't have time for the rest, but the fact is Vatican II clearly repeats the exclusive claim that Christ and his church is the one path to salvation. Anybody who tells you something different is, is selling something, and it's not Catholicism. And these just these few quotes really show how far from Vatican II many in the church have strayed. After 50-plus years, I think it's about time we realized that Vatican II did not change the teaching of the Church, and that is no nonsense. Look forward to being back with you again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. I'm Matthew Arms for BMPR. See you next week. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.